The Letter to the Hebrews, Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrew Christians begins chapter 2, or rather this continuing part of the book. He doesn't, he doesn't put the chapter breaks in. Those were added a thousand years later or so. But he adds uh, a statement that then says, therefore. And at the very beginning of this chapter, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore in relation to? It is a, a word that uh, ushers us into a continuation of thought. He says, therefore, we must do this. And he's making a logical argument. He's stating that this therefore is in the place of a continuation. 
there's a continuation of thought between the first chapter and chapter 2. And if you were here last week, you may remember what we discussed in chapter 1, but if not, I'm going to review it just for a moment or two. In, first, in uh, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer is intimating that God has spoken to the people of Israel in many ways and in many times through various means, through the calling of the patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Abraham, through the leading and guiding of these patriarchs to a promise that he gave to them, to those prophets that he rose up, such as Moses and Samuel, Joshua. These ones spoke to the people of Israel and gave them warnings concerning not falling away from faith to Yahweh. Now, this was never a faith which they must procure themselves or come up with themselves in order to obtain Yahweh's favor. But each time one of these patriarchs, prophets, kings, priests were called, they were given a message, and that message was the annunciation to Israel of all the great things that God had done for them and a reminder to stay steadfast in the covenant. Some of us have a wrong perception of the covenant that Moses gave to the people of Israel, saying that this was how they were to obtain Yahweh's blessing. But it's actually the case that Yahweh put his blessing on those people. That's why he delivered them out of Egypt. And so they were already in a covenant of grace, a gracious relationship with Yahweh, before they were then told by Moses to remember the things that Yahweh has done. In fact, even understanding that the point of the law was to keep it by remembering, we have to understand that it's not a, a work to obtain the grace of God, but rather to maintain steadfast faithfulness with the one who had already called them. And so the Hebrew writer says to these Christians who understand the old covenant scriptures, he says to them, in Times past, Yahweh spoke in this manner, but now he has spoken through the express person of his son. That is to say that if none of them paid attention to the message before, they must take heed to the message which has come now, namely the gospel as presented by the King Jesus. Jesus being this King as the son of God who he is, has suffered, and it's that suffering that then the Hebrew writer begins to examine. Why is it that this king has suffered? Why is it that though he was going to reign forever eternally, how is it the case that through God uttering forth his word, that is his son, to the people, how is it that that son was made to suffer? And it's our uh, task now to examine how Christ's suffering actually not only is done for us, but it's done unto our persistence in the faith. It's actually a means by which we will fight the good fight of faith. Uh, it's not something which we dwell on to shame ourselves with or, or say, look at how great our sin is, but rather it's something that we uh, take as a joy because it's actually a, a grace that God's given us. The memory of Christ's suffering, seeing how far he has come from his continent condescension from the place of deity to taking on flesh and suffering a bodily death, seeing that disparity or, or uh, the, the difference between the two positions, we're actually given a great weapon in our tool of steadfast faithfulness. Uh, that is to say that we understand how to maintain the Christian life by meditating upon the suffering of Christ. It's not something that we turn inward, but rather we understand and look outward towards Christ himself. Before looking at that aspect of suffering, the Hebrew writer gives a warning 
at this very beginning, the very beginning of our reading today, saying, therefore, we must pay all the more attention. So that's where I want to begin today. I want to look first at a warning that the Hebrew writer gives against apostasy. And I, I want to explain what I mean by that word. Apostasy is a falling away from the apostolic tradition. A, a apostasy is a turning away from the gospel so as to neglect it or think it's trivial or think it's unimportant. Apostasy is to renounce that which you have known and have learned by the grace of God from the spirit of God. And as, as believers who uh, lovingly uh, care for and, and cherish the doctrines of grace, there is a doctrine which is wrongly presented called the perseverance of saints and it's wrongly presented in the terms eternal security. Now, I understand that when theologians use those terms or phrases, they mean distinctly different things. But some of you believe in the doctrine of perseverance of saints, but that's simply the wrong label for what the doctrine of the perseverance of saints means. The doctrine of the perseverance of saints means that all those who are given by the Father to the Son persist in their faith. They, that is to say, they are sustained by the Holy Spirit of God so that there is no falling away. It does not mean what eternal security means, which is, I prayed a sinner's prayer, therefore I'm going to heaven. Or, I attended church as a young person, therefore I'm right with God today. Now, by saying attending church, I'm not saying that attending church puts you right with God. If that were the case, then Christ died in vain. Nevertheless, there is a false notion of what it means in the doctrines of grace to pers persevere. It is not an assumption that you can make that because you are near to God now, that that means you will persist in the grace of God. Our assurance from faith or the assurance of faith rests in not your own performance, but namely in Jesus Christ and seeing that you still today are continuing to build on that foundation which was laid by Christ, as Paul tells the Corinthians. And so understanding this, we have removed the teeth, understanding it wrongly, we have removed the teeth from the warnings of the New Testament to not swear, uh, swerve away from or get distracted from the faith as it was delivered to us. That is to say, we are susceptible to falling away. And the Hebrew writer has a warning that he gives, and that warning is substantive. Uh, that warning being substantive is to say that that warning has a real danger in it. Warnings that don't carry any danger are just stickers and labels on things. They don't, they don't stop or cause you to meditate on. I, I'm reminded of the speed limits that I see on the highway. Unless there's a real danger behind, namely how many times I've been pulled over in my life, the real danger is in force. The speed limit is not just a suggestion. You can get away with a few miles, but not more than 10. There's even a phrase colloquially, nine, you're fine, 10, you're mine. That's, that's what the, I've learned that, and it's very true. I've tested that at eight miles an hour and nine miles an hour and 20 miles an hour, and it's very true after 10. So the warning that the Hebrew writer gives, it's a real warning. It is a real warning. And that warning heard by a true believer causes one to run ever closer to God. 
that is, the, the, fear of wis- uh, the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom, when we see Yahweh's severity and we know of Yahweh's mercy and grace that is available to us as the Hebrew writer closes this chapter, then all the more we want to run to God, not run from God. And in fact, the very same gospel message, which is there is a severe warning of judgment for those who do not pay attention to or take heed of the gospel message, that same word, which is a warning to the believer, which causes the believer to run to God, causes the reprobate to shrink back from God and to think of God as a tyrant or an evil God. Nevertheless, the warning is given and it is rightly so. The word of God divides. The word of God does not unify. So the rightness of Christ's suffering will then be examined, understanding that Christ's suffering was not due to a diminishment or a lesser glory as we looked last week, and then the writer again brings us to the attention of this week. Uh, Christ's suffering being done because it was fitting. The word that the Hebrew writer used, it was fitting that. That's a wonderful phrase, and I think it's a very helpful thing to examine and to understand. And then finally, I want to look at Christ's atonement as being a fraternal atonement. Now, by fraternity, I don't mean something that you join in college. Uh, a fraternity is a brotherhood. I mean that in the precise term. That is to say that Christ's atonement, that, that which he did on the cross in taking upon our sins, he did for the children of Abraham, and he considers them to be his brothers, as the Hebrew writer uh, mentions here, citing various Psalms and, and even Isaiah in two places, uh, examining how the atonement is actually something Christ does in unity with his people. So again, there, there's another doctrine which is popular to attack today, the penal substitutionary atonement, which is that In going to the cross, Christ takes on our guilt, and in taking on that guilt, we see a God who is wrathful and filled with hatred and this, that, and the other thing. That's that's what the, the the opponents of penal substitutionary atonement claim. They claim that the Father... Uh, abuses the son in pouring out the wrath that he has on sin against the son on the cross. And nothing could be further from the truth. In the biblical record of the doctrine, that is the biblical explanation of the doctrine, it says that Christ does this because he and the the, the father and the children of Abraham have the same source. And that Christ considers it as a right thing to do for helping his brothers. There's a popular notion about, uh, there's in fact a song, I think it's, um, I I forget the term, maybe you've heard it, but the song has a refrain that essentially comes to the light about uh, a man or a young man carrying his brother who's disabled. And in this refrain, uh, it's one of the most popular songs to be sung. I think it's even a Broadway song. The refrain is, he's not heavy, he's my brother. And the idea is that Christ's atonement was not some abstract thing where the father was pouring out wrath on the son because it was disconnected from something, but rather there was a due penalty on the brothers of Christ. And so by fraternal atonement, I mean, what is the substitutionary atonement look like? How does that play out in relation to these verses about Christ considering it right to identify with 
his brothers in this way. It's an act of love, not simply for the Father. It's an act of love also for those who were to inherit salvation, as we're going to see. And then finally, that will bring us to the place where we're able to see Christ's ability to help us in our weakness. So, as I mentioned last week, the the writer has shown that the Son's incarnation and ministry is the final word from the Father. Essentially, what the Hebrew writer is doing in setting up the book in this order, he says, if they didn't listen to Abraham, if they didn't listen to Moses, if they didn't listen to Joshua, if they rebelled against Samuel, if all of the judges eventually fell away, uh, at least, at final last, God has spoken the final word through his Son. What he's getting to is that there no longer remains another word from the Father. There's no, if they won't listen to Christ, they have no other message that is coming. Because God has spoken by his Son, as we saw last week, he has spoken authoritatively and he has spoken purely. That is, the Hebrew writer in examining the deity of the Son, the full majesty of the Son of God, calling the Son the exact imprint of the Father's nature, we understand that the Hebrew writer is saying there was nothing in error in the Son's representation of the Father. That is, not only his teaching, not only his ministry, but the way in which he demonstrated the Father, the way in which he taught, the way in which he spoke, all of these were done in perfection of obedience. They were done without any blemish, flaw, or ability to be misconstrued. That is, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and some of the people of Israel did blaspheme against Yahweh in rejecting the Son, but not because of some cause within the Son's representation, but rather only as cause to their sin and rebellion against God. The Son's perfect representation, therefore, being the final world word, must be heeded. It must be approved and listened to. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest, that word lest is not in modern parlance, although it's still in the English standard. I like that word. I think you should start to use it. It might help slow the decay of the English language. Nevertheless, this word less means unless or without doing the first part, it will be necessarily the case that we will do the second part. That is to say, unless we pay attention to the gospel, unless we understand Christ's full representation of the Father, unless we take heed of that, unless we obey it, then we will drift away from what we have heard. I don't know about you, drifting away from what we've heard sounds horrible. And the writer then begins to examine what it means to fall away or to drift away. Although God had spoken in times past through fallen men, he now has spoken through his son. And I want to show that even though these were fallen men, that is, each one of the prophets, patriarchs, priests, kings, judges, all those who warned Israel, all those who reminded them, even though they were deficient, that is, personally sinful, the word which they gave forth was pure. The Holy Spirit so saw fit to move through their warnings, through their commandments, that the, the people of God received the very oracles of God. They received the very message of God, which has been written down for us. And that message, as the Hebrew writer says, was proved to be true. Moses, if you remember in the Old Covenant, had a perfect leadership over the people of Israel. 
He was perfect in everything. And in fact, later in the next chapter, uh, the Hebrew writer is going to say that Moses was obedient in all of God's house. And that was true. Moses did not sin in the tabernacle, but on the way to the promised land, Moses, who had a perfect record, was the most uh, preeminent of those who were foreshadowing forth Christ. He sins at the, the rock of Meribah. And the people grumble against Yahweh. They grumble against Moses. And God tells Moses to speak to the rock. And Moses, although unfortunately being a foreshadowing of the uh, cr cross of Christ, he strikes the rock. And Yahweh immediately says to Moses, because you did not regard me as holy before the people, you will not bring them into the land. What Yahweh is demonstrating is that even though Moses was accurate in all that he taught, in all that he did and demonstrated, his one sin in which he de demonstrated the wrath of God against a valid petition that God would give them water in the desert, uh, that disqualified him from being able to take them into the land. Nevertheless, the words that Moses uttered, according to the Hebrew writer, were true words. They were words that were proved true and demonstrated as such. His warnings to the people were still substantive. They had teeth. They had a true warning within them. They were not simply just, oh, it would be very good if you maintain these laws in the land. It would set up society nicely, or you would prosper greatly. No, they also contained warnings. It wasn't just, oh, this would be a better way to rule the country. Without following the laws of God given to the nation, the people would suffer under persecution from foreign nations, invading armies, and ultimately the exile, which would remove them from the land. One of the things that's not very often examined in the Old Covenant scriptures is to understand that after the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles, it's not really clear if all the people come back. There's a remnant. When Jesus shows up at, at the time of his incarnation, around what we now, because, because of his work, count our calendar by, 2,000 years ago, that time in Israel, it was not very clear which tribes were back and which tribes were lost in the, in the dispersion. And in fact, that's why the book of Acts and Pentecost and the Peter's epistles contain writings or calls to the Jews who are lost. Now, that's another story for another day, but it's important to see that they did not heed those warnings and suffered under a great exile. That's why it, I think it's fitting, although I, I don't fully know all the circumstances, I think it's fitting that the letter written to the Hebrews is not addressed to any one city, kind of like First and Second Peter. They're addressed to people who are abroad. Therefore, we understand that this warning had teeth, this warning had sub substance to it. It was a right warning, which was not listened to, and, and the people of, of Israel disobeyed. Nevertheless, God proved that word to be true and accurate. The words which were spoken before the covenant with Israel contained a just retribution for every transgression. If you're not a student of the law, that is, you don't really know the law of God in great detail, I would encourage you to go and spend some time in Deuteronomy, especially Leviticus, especially chapter 16, and look at the penalties which God has imposed against those who profane his name and those who reject his plan for the way that life is supposed to work reject his plan for upholding the value of life and upholding the value of sexuality. These things each contain a just retribution. That is, after each commandment that Yahweh gave, 
he then included the penalty if that commandment was not obeyed. And so this is exactly what the Hebrew writer means in verse 2. He says, for since the message declared by angels, and there again, as I mentioned in the last week, that word angels is not simply talking about angels. It does include angels, but also means messengers. That is, those sent by God, the message that were give, was given by angels to Moses and Moses to the people, because it proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. It was a reliable warning. It was a true warning. And the Hebrew writer says, if that was the case in times of old, and now God has given his final word, that is, he spoke at, at times of old in this way, and everything received a retribution, everything that was, was against God's law received a just punishment, how much more so now if we do not pay attention to the word which he has given through his son? The Hebrew writer reasons in this way. And he says that this is not simply given through his son, but it was attested to, of course, the word being spoken in the person and ministry of Christ, but it was also attested to by the Father and the Spirit. Look at this. He, he examines the, the message which was spoken as a Trinitarian message. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and by that he means the Lord Jesus Christ, it was attested to us by those who heard, that is the apostles, the disciples, those in the land of Israel who heard Jesus' voice audibly. And then from there, he moves on to say, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, oftentimes in the, in the New Testament writings, the doctrine of the Trinity is espoused as the Lord, God, and the Holy Spirit. And by that, we understand them to properly be meaning Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Spirit, while God, that is the Father, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here he actually adds the apostolic witness to the Trinitarian verification or publication of the gospel and its truth. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ bore witness himself. The Father gave signs and wonders and the Holy Spirit gave gifts. But not only that, the apostles, the disciples, those who heard rightly, also testified to the truth of it. So what does the writer mean at this point by neglecting salvation? Verse 2 again, or sorry, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What does it mean for us or for someone to neglect the salvation of Jesus or the salvation that God spoke through his son? It simply means that those who neglect salvation are those who treat it as a trivial thing, who esteem it lightly. These are the warnings, and in fact, when we get to Hebrews 6, this same type of warning will be given. Those who esteem it lightly, those who fail to seek to understand it. Are you seeking to understand the gospel? Are you seeking to understand the warnings that Christ himself gave? Or are you simply treating the gospel as something that you will get to at a later point? or a later date, or you'll begin to consider it seriously once I have a family, or once I get married, or once I get a better job, or a different scenario in life? Or are you thinking of the gospel as something that concerns really only the next life and doesn't have any implication for your obedience now? Do you disdain the grace of God by presuming upon it? That is to say, I can persist in my sin. God will forgive me tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, those who presume upon the grace of God by saying God will forgive me tomorrow are in no sure or safe place 
in the mercy of God. That is to say, if you operate in a way in which you think, oh, I can still do these things, God will have grace for me, you are beginning to presume on the grace of God. You should, according to these verses, fly to the mercy seat and petition Christ that he would help you in those moments of temptation. Those who neglect such a great salvation, it's not mainly talking about those who continue little tiny sins or or deficiencies of character, but rather are in such a state with God that they've hardened their heart to reality. They don't think the gospel applies to them. They don't think the warnings of judgment apply to them. They presume upon their own view of God, saying God is a merciful God and God is a gracious God and God never judges. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. I never feel the effect of my sin. God says sin begets death and I'm still alive. And they presume upon the grace of God thinking that God judges immediately when God is displaying amazing patience to them. They push God at a distance. That's what it means when the Hebrew writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's no word remaining. Those who deny Christ's warnings to repent, those who presume upon God's forgiveness and blaspheme the Spirit by hardening their hearts, those are the ones that the Hebrew writer intends to mean by those who neglect such a great salvation. And his, uh, his phrase, escape, implies or means or forces us to reason that there is something coming upon those who neglect that salvation which should be escaped or should be attempted to be escaped. Those who neglect this salvation have no means of escape from the wrath of God, being already under condemnation, already under condemnation. That is, the judgment which comes at the end of the age, that is only a verification of what's going on now. That is, those who reject and push off Christ and say that they'll deal with it another day, they are the ones who are already condemned. It is not Christ who came to condemn, rather he comes because they're already condemned. They have neither excuse from nor ability to bring about a reformation. That is to say, they, if, if they do not pay attention to the word that was spoken by the Son, they have no excuse that it does not apply to them. What will they say at the the great judgment? They will have nothing to say. Not only will they have nothing to say, they will have no ability to escape the punishment which comes upon them. The only remedy that the Hebrew writer says, the only remedy that is made possible by these two verses, Hebrews 2, 2, and 3, say that those who are in this state must pay attention to the word which was spoken. They must take hold of the gospel and begin to examine it and seek to apply it by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit to their hearts. So therefore, the Hebrew writer says, if we do not pay attention to this, how will we escape? If, there, if the word was spoken and given through his son and that's the final word, then what is to happen to those who don't pay attention to that word? Is there any word coming? No, there's no word coming. The final word is a gospel word. If the scriptures warn us, saying that every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses, then we must listen to these witnesses, namely the blessed Trinity. That is to say, in the old covenant, it was given to the people of Israel that in their trials, in how they examined, did this person actually commit this crime, and how do we verify it, and how do we establish the justice which God commands us to put in our society, he gave them a standard of judgment, 
or a law of jurisprudence. That is, this was their main theory in how they approached legal matters and the establishing of facts was that every fact or every judgment had to be confirmed by two or three eyewitnesses. Now, those eyewitnesses were not simply cameras turned on like we have today. If you've ever seen some of the, the video, I saw a video last night, it was horrifying. Uh, What's going on with the police state in our society is, is tragic. But nevertheless, we don't have time to examine that today. But the point being that God is not giving the Israelites this system where they have to have cameras everywhere. They, they don't have cameras back then, if you didn't know. But the point is that these eyewitnesses had to testify with their whole being and person. And in the law of God, he established the quality of those witnesses Namely, that anyone who testified in a capital offense crime, that is, if you bore witness in public at a jury trial and you lied about that thing, you were to, and it was discovered that you were actually lying, you would then receive the exact punishment that was going to be applied to the person that you testified against. That is the quality of witness that this is talking about in the Old Covenant system in Deuteronomy 19, the witness had to testify on pain of death. I don't know about you, I would never testify. I could have been wrong. I could have drank too much that night. I could have been sleepy. The things I've seen moving around, I have, I have nightlights all over my house because I don't want to stub my toe or drop my child. But the things that I see going on in the shadows at night, Brothers and sisters, if that is the quality of witness that God commanded for a human punishment, then what is the commandment that he establishes for eternal punishment? Namely, the witnesses of himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These testify against those who put off the gospel. Nevertheless, having rightly demonstrated the Son's divinity in the previous chapter and giving his hearers a right and true warning which we must take heed of. Giving that warning, he then begins to highlight the severity of Christ's condescension. Remember, in the first chapter, we see Jesus Christ as fully divine, glorious, eternal. His coming was from of old, that is to say, the eternal generation of the Son. That is what the church denied against the Arians and established in the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, that those who say that there was a time when Christ was not are deemed as anathema. That is the eternal generation of the Son of God because he was fully divine ever in the bosom of his Father. We then begin to see from that place of divine glory and majesty dwelling in the comfort and delight of the Holy Spirit along with the Father, he then comes and steps down into time and into human frailty. Can you imagine that for just a second? I see all these documentaries on Netflix, which I love, and I get to see various things like the conditions of people who are living in India or in Africa or in uh, other countries that we might think of here in America as third world. And I was watching one last night, and it was just on the food of India, and it had nothing to do with the poverty of India. And I'm just looking around my house, and then I'm looking at the TV, and I'm looking around my house again, and then the TV, and I'm seeing, wow, there is an immediate and stark contrast between that type of life and the life that I have here in America. Now, this didn't send me into a moral guilt tripping in which I'm going to sell all my stuff and become poor. That won't help anyone. Um, I'll feel better about myself, maybe. Uh, 
if I'm fleshly. But nevertheless, I, I began to meditate on how stark of a contrast there was between the benefits that I'm experiencing now and what happened even 100 years ago in our country or in other places around the world. You and I are, are I'm almost chilly right now because of the quality of air conditioning in our building. And 100 years ago, most churches probably didn't have any sort, possibly not even fans. The point being that if I can understand how great a difference there is between my lifestyle and someone just around the world, begin to meditate on the great difference between being ever in the bosom of the Father and coming and living as a baby, becoming one who is the word which was spoken but for, for years not speaking, the one who was boundless yet at the time in his mother's womb was bound within her womb. Consider the, the difference between the Son of God's glory eternally being with the Father and then coming to receive spite from sinners and, and rejection from those who he sought to, to redeem. That was why we sang that song this morning, Man of Sorrows. Because this one who Isaiah called Yahweh's servant was going to endure such hostility from sinners. And we are taught in these very chapters to consider him and to emulate him and to think about it. So therefore, in examining his atonement, it's right to begin with the atonement, the cross of Christ wasn't the first step in his suffering and humiliation. Eight, part two, now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Christ, he, the father, left nothing outside Christ's control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Whenever someone is wrestling with post-millennial hope and will the world be redeemed by, by God, I always take him to this verse. I say, well, it's not yet in subjection, verse 9, but we see him, namely Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What the Hebrew writer is saying is that the church, through the ministry of the apostles, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor, that same one being the one who suffered and was humiliated, dying upon a cross in a naked and horribly shameful state. He received glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is how the Hebrew writer teaches us to take glory in the gospel, that Jesus not only was magnificent and glorious, eternally being with the Father, but also he has suffered, and because of that suffering, he has been reinstated at the right hand of the Father, no longer being in the bosom of the Father, but being on display, eternally being made manifest, retaining his physical body in the incarnation as the true heavenly man as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And this true heavenly man was made perfect through the things that he suffered. In the eternal counsel of God, God deemed it right that the incarnate son would experience death on behalf of all those who would trust in him for salvation. I want you to understand how the gospel actually works. This is what the Hebrew writer is doing. He's saying that it was fitting in the counsel of God. That is, God within himself thought it right, decided that it was right that the son would suffer in this way. This humiliation was the ultimate proof and demonstration of his right to all authority and power and rule. In this way, Christ is actually not a tyrant. He's not one who usurps the throne. He's actually the anti-tyrant. 
when you think about it. Christ's ascension and coronation, therefore, are the vindication of his righteousness. When he is installed at the right hand of the Father, it is the Father's testimony or the final vindication of the Son that this one did nothing wrong and has obeyed perfectly in every way. Far from usurping the throne or reigning for his own sake, Christ is an anti-tyrant. He's the opposite of the kings of men that we see running around these days. Uh, Many people are talking about what the British just did recently with leaving the European Union, and I, I don't really care too much. I think that they would do well to also get rid of their queen, but uh, that's heresy if you know any British people or people who perhaps the Kenyans are going to be mad at me. I don't know what you're, even Anvesh might be, I don't know. The, the point being that they took one step towards dismantling some of the statism that they've let creep in their country. Now, I don't think they did it for the right motives. I don't think that the true motive was to install Christ and to, to throw off the European Union. And I don't really have a dog in that fight. I don't really care one way or the other. I think that they, even if they get rid of the European Union laws, they will still have many horrible, tyrannical things going on in their country. Nevertheless, I just was curious, and so I went to watch a video, and the guy who was running the whole Leave campaign gave a talk at the EU. And the whole time, Everyone from the EU, who I guess this is supposed to be a fraternity of nations where everyone is welcome and equally taxed and oppressed, they all yelled at him constantly as he was trying to give this speech. And I just thought to myself, wow, look at the arrogance of, this, of these leaders. They have presumed to present this as a collaboration of nations who were banding together, and yet when one of them wants to leave, they, the true colors come out. It, they, it, it demonstrates that they oppress certain nations and give money to other nations in a way thus oppressing those nations. Nevertheless, the point being, I was just amazed at these tyrants who presume to control other people's countries and even within those countries, the taxation of their citizens being to a terrible, ungodly level. Nevertheless, Christ is totally the opposite of this. In fact, that's one of the things that politics serves for is a way to meditate on the purity of Christ. If you want to think about the purity of Christ, just watch Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and think 180% or 180 degrees opposite of that and then sanctified, and then you have something of an idea. So the point being, the Christ is not, he's not one who usurps the throne. He's installed in the throne. He's installed in the throne because he's vindicated as perfectly obeying the Father and suffering death on a cross. A terrible pain and horribly humiliating. Verse 10, for it was fitting. This is the Hebrews writer saying the Hebrew writer saying, This is what was going on in the council of God. It was fitting. That is, God saw it right that he, that is the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bring in bringing many sons to glory, would make perfect the founder of their salvation through suffering. By it was fitting, the writer intends that this is God's will. He considers it a thing that is right and truthful, a thing that is according to the nature of God. By it is fitting, he does not mean that the son was less than the father, therefore the son was sent and the father stayed back. It does not mean that the son has any less glory, but rather it was a thing that was fitting within God, Jesus being the son, also to be the founder of those who also would be called sons. 
God declared it right that the Father should make perfect the incarnate Son through obedient suffering. This was God's intention in the incarnation. Because the Father had sent him, Christ does not consider brotherhood those who to be redeemed as regarding, uh, as degrading. That is to say, he doesn't consider unifying with these people who he knows to be brothers because they have the same source as they do. He, being from the Father, is also going to be unified as a brother to those who would be called sons of glory. Not capital S sons, not ever being assumed into the divine, but rather those who would be rightly called sons of the Father. This is what's going on in John 13 when Jesus is um, approaching the, his uh, last few days on the earth. And in fact, I want to just turn right there. Uh, let's see. Oh yes, what a, what a beautiful verse. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is what Jesus is doing at the the upper room before the meal takes place, which we will then remember and celebrate in our Eucharist. Before that takes place, Jesus Christ, knowing that he had come from God, was sent to the earth and was going to God. Understanding where he had come from and understanding, understanding the destination after his suffering then became even lower. Christ in wiping the disciples' feet and washing them with the towel around him is acting out a vis- visual parable or a visual sermon of the incarnation right before their eyes so they might be able to understand it. This is why the Hebrew writer is able to say he did not consider it as something that was shameful to call them brothers. For he, sanct- for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified ha- all have one source. That is, he who sanctifies is Christ and those who are sanctified are those who Christ will call his brothers. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. The Hebrew writer then begins to recite some Psalms as well as Isaiah 8 and 9. And indeed, this very verse, Behold, I and the children God has given me. This right here, these quotes are spoken as if they are pertaining by the Spirit of God to Christ. That is, David and the prophet Isaiah are considered to be prophesying by the Spirit of God those very things which Christ himself would speak forth. This is how, uh, if you've been with us at the time of Advent, in looking at Isaiah 9, we hear of the Son of God that he will be called the Eternal Father or Everlasting Father. It does not mean, Isaiah does not mean that he will be like the Father, that is, the Father and the Son are really not different, but rather that he will be considered to be the Father of all those who believe, all those who receive sanctification. On the contrary, it is shown to be as pertaining to God's desire that Christ take on our infirmities, weakness, and even sentence of death. It's right to understand that Christ had to suffer these things because we were going to suffer these things. Christ receives the penalty of the trespass, though he himself did not commit it. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, that is to say, because these brothers are 
fleshly, that is, they're, they're flesh and blood, they're human beings, because they're corporeal, bodily, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what's going on in the people of God who are not yet atoned for. Before the atonement of Christ, although they are saints, although they have believed in the promises of God, they themselves were guilty of a punishment that deserved death. And until Jesus, their high priest, receives that death, there cannot be a liberty. And so in order to deliver them from that death, he takes on flesh. This again feeds right back into our time in Advent. In fact, I hope that at at that time later on this year that you will remember back and meditate on these things. The reason why the Son of God became human was because those who were to inherit salvation were human. That's why the Hebrew writer says, it is not angels that he helps, right? The Son takes on our nature in order to take on our death. Christ comes not only to bear witness of the Father, but to become killable. That's what it means for Christ to take on flesh. It means that the immortal is clothed with mortality. He does that in order to be killed. He doesn't do that in order to just bear witness of the Father, to preach and teach in synagogues and in public places, to heal those who were sick. All of those were demonstrating the nature of the Father, but the primary reason or the ultimate reason, those being the penultimate reason, the ultimate reason for Christ's incarnation, for coming, taking on flesh, taking on our weakness, taking on frailty, was in order to be killable, in order to be killed. As the high priest who makes atonement for the people is chosen from among the people, so also Christ is found among his brothers. This is why at the beginning of last week's sermon, as as I kind of kicked off this series, I said we're at the point in our church where some of us are, are knowledgeable enough about the old covenant system to begin to actually understand what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying that, the, that Jesus is exactly like that which was foreshadowed by the high priests in the old covenant system. That is, those who were the people of Israel had a weight of sin upon them, and God established for them a means of putting off sin for a year by which the high priest chosen from among the people would come before God, present himself as sprinkled with blood and washed in the, in the bronze laver, and then he would appeal before God at the mercy seat and make an atonement for the sins of the people. Now that atonement was a shadow and a type of that which is true reality, namely Jesus Christ's coming. But it's not simply the day of atonement that Christ also embodies in his priesthood. He also shows forth every other type and shadow that which was spoken of by the high priest. That is to say, the high priest also proclaimed liberty to those who were in the cities of refuge. If you want to take a look at this, in Numbers 35, 26 through 27, God gives through Moses a commandment to the people that if someone should accidentally kill another person, they could flee to a city that he was to designate within their regions, and that city was known as a city of refuge. And that city was a place where they would live for a time. And if they made it to that city, it was, you, it was against the law of God to kill them. Now, this is not talking about those who commit murder. This is talking about those who commit manslaughter, accidental killing of a human man. This is how important the life of man is to God, that even if you accidentally kill someone through negligence or through what is normally deemed an accident, you were able to escape to a place of mercy, 
But the requirement was that you had to live there until such a time as the high priest was put to death. Why? Because he embodies the guilt that is on all those who exist in the cities of refuge. When the high priest dies, when the high priest passes away, then all those who were waiting for a sentence of death were able to depart. Why? Because the sentence was typified through the death of the high priest. That was all done pointing forward to Jesus. That is to say, all the people of Israel had, had need of living within the cities of, of refuge. All of mankind is under a guilt which is worthy of death. And so Christ's death frees his people from their sentence. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is very important if you're witnessing with, with people and, and you're sharing the gospel and they say, well, if Christ died for everybody, then why do, you know, why do some people still go to hell? And the, the simple answer is Christ did not die for everyone. He died for those who he would call and bring to himself. He says, all that the Father gives me are in my hand. I lose none of them. There is no one greater than the Father who can snatch them out. Likewise, here it says, he doesn't help the angels. Those who have fallen away, those who join in league with Satan, they have no remedy. It's not as if Christ was given over for the angels' sanctification and benefit. They are ministers of those who were to receive salvation, as the first chapter tells us. But rather, it is the children of Abraham. And understanding that in the New Testament is not simply the nation of Israel, but those who are true children of Abraham, who have the family resemblance of Abraham, who operate in the same faith and obedience as Abraham. This is the major way of, of the apostles speaking in the New Testament towards the church as those who are the true city of God, those who are truly daughters of Sarah, those who are truly sons of Abraham. Jesus himself began that hermeneutic or that way of speaking by warring against the Pharisees, saying to them, do not presume for yourselves to, call, to say we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from these stones. What he's saying is that the hardness of heart operating in the Pharisees was worse than real hardness in a stone. He's saying that you are not children of Abraham. You were party to the covenant. You had the obligation to stay in faith to Yahweh, but you've broken that. You've proven to not be children of Abraham, but rather children of Adam. Nevertheless, verse 17, therefore, because this was what Christ wanted to do, this was what the Father had sent him to do, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A offering which is not in like manner to those things which need sanctified does not count. Therefore, God did not just wave a magic wand over the sins of man and call out the elect from among their midst. In God's estimation of justice, the way that he wished to deal with the problem of sin, he wished to pour out wrath upon that sin. And that wrath is nothing short of the sentence of death which was due on all those who had committed the trespass. And so Christ takes on human flesh in order to be able to receive that. He takes on flesh not only in order to make atonement, but to experientially know the weakness of human frailty. I want you to understand this because this, among many other doctrines, this one sets away Christianity far away from every other false religion. Uh, 
And this is, this is nothing other than our God knows what it is like in an experiential and true way, true real knowledge that he retains forever. He knows what it is like to be weak. He knows what it is like to be powerless. I want you to meditate upon that because this is the omnipotent, omnipresent God who becomes weak and local, or that is limited to a particular space and time. This is why I I say and routinely advise young Christians, begin to meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. Begin to meditate on the glory of the incarnation. These are treasures which were given to you. Your inheritance is Christ. These are things that as Christians belong to us to meditate on. And so considering not only was he a son eternally dwelling with the Father who came in human weakness, but he came in order to know truly what it was like to be weak to be frail. As he grew in favor with God in Luke 2, 40 and 52, so also he became empathetic with man. Our God is not a God who sympathizes in theory. Our God is a God who knows experientially. Verse 18, this is where the Hebrew writer is taking us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, though that temptation did not arise from within him, but rather as we see in the temptation in the wilderness, always came from outside of him, Though, though it was from outside of him, he still suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is what the Hebrew writer is intending to say. Do not fall away from the faith. Do not neglect the plan of salvation which God has made manifest to you, which he has by the Spirit of God preached to your heart, but rather take heed all the more. And in the midst of taking heed, begin to fight in this way. Arm yourself with the truth that not only... Did Christ come from God, suffer, and return to God? He suffered in order to be able to sympathize with me, therefore giving him the ability and right to be able to suffer with me now and provide me spiritual resource and energy to fight the fight of faith this moment. The next time you're tempted, you're able to say, you're able to look at Hebrews 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help me right now. Because he knows what it is like. Christ doesn't just theoretically know, but he really truly knows. Therefore, as you face this temptation, I urge you to fly to Christ. To go by prayer before his throne and to seek him for grace all the more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would warm our hearts to the truth of your gospel. We ask you that you would, as David prayed, that you would pierce our ears, that you would cut through those things which are blocking us from hearing, Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us the ability not only to hear, but also a willingness to do that which we've heard. I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us, that you would not allow any of us to be hearers of the word only, but also to be doers, those who would put into practice these things which your Hebrew writer has warned us of. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.